Well, good morning again. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Lord willing, we will finish Mark chapter 2 and we will look into the first six verses as well of chapter 3. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And we'll read into chapter 3 to the end of verse 6. Just a comment about all those announcements at the beginning. If you have any questions or concerns or thoughts or need any information at all, please uh, don't hesitate to contact uh, Stephanie in the office or myself. Um, we will be happy to assist and give you whatever information we have at that point. Um, we're excited about the, the ways things, the direction things are going, and we are looking forward to the new opportunities that we've got in the future. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's just pray one more time. Father, We pray lots on a Sunday morning, and I usually pray before we dive into your word, maybe partly out of habit. It's a good habit if that's part of the reason, but Lord, we recognize that if we are to get anything from your word at all, we need your help. If we are un to understand anything, to grasp and comprehend anything in here, it's got to be by your help. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, help us to see what he teaches, help us to see how he taught from the scriptures, help us to see and understand and to believe who he is as son of God and son of man. We pray that you would turn our hearts towards him and help us to follow him more fully. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So this passage, this section this morning concludes a series of controversies that Jesus has had over the past chapter. 
Chapter 2 began with the paralytic, the forgiving of sins, the, the four men lowering him down, and the controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus. How, how, can, how can you claim to forgive sins? And there was calling Levi, and there was eating and drinking with, having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus seems to be accepting and welcoming towards those who, by the Pharisees' definition, were unwelcomable, unacceptable according to their law, according to their interpretation of the law. And there was questions about fasting. Why doesn't Jesus fast? And there was what we looked at last week, the, the old garment and the new, the old wine skins and the new wine. And now this week, it's controversy, and it's controversy over the Sabbath. So there's, it's been stuff relating to, it's all been revolving around the topic of the law, particularly how the Pharisees saw and interpreted and understood what the law meant and what that meant for God's people. And if we want to understand what this controversy is about, these two short paragraphs, these two short stories, we need to understand the Sabbath rightly in its Old Testament context. We need to understand what, was, what did the Torah actually teach? What did God actually tell his people through Moses about the Sabbath? And then we need to also understand the Pharisees' interpretation of that. that we have roughly between the end of Malachi in our Bibles and the beginning of Matthew in our Bibles, we have 400 years. And we don't have things in our scriptures, in our Bible. We have history that tells us what the Jewish Pharisees and the Jewish rabbis taught. What did they teach? What did they understand about the Sabbath? We know what God instituted with Moses at Mount Sinai. And we, we can see throughout the Old Testament how, how they sought to follow that and understand that. But what happened in those 400 years? Because those 400 years set us up for right now. Those 400 years help us understand why the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. And so the Old Testament institution, as the Lord uh, gave the instructions to Moses, are found in, in the book of Exodus. Actually, one, I'm just going to turn back there. It's easier. If, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn back there too. You can flip around a little bit and then you can see. I'm not going to read everything, but you can see what's in there. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. We may have tried to memorize them as kids. We may be encouraging our kids to memorize them. But Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, is the section on the Sabbath. And what it says in there is don't work on the Sabbath. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or servant your male servant or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. No work on the Sabbath. That becomes very abundantly clear. Do not work on the Sabbath. But why? Verse 11 tells us the why. For in six days the Lord made the heaven the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. That is, the Sabbath was instituted as rest for God's people, patterning after creation itself, patterning after what God did, how God worked. God worked for six days and then he rested. Not because God was tired, not because he ran out of energy and he needed a break. And even though we, as the people of God, the Israelites as the people of God, could have worked seven days, did they, did they need to work six days and then rest on the seventh no, there are many people who today work seven days a week. Physically, our bodies, if you get enough sleep throughout the day, you can work seven days a week. But it's patterning after 
God himself. And our work pattern is reflecting, is meant to reflect, reflect that we belong to the Lord and that we are sustained by him. On that seventh day, the Israelites were meant to stop working. You don't work on that day. Why? Well, you've worked six days, so maybe you've built up enough to build up for the seventh day. You work six days and, and you build up just a little bit each day. It's like working an extra hour at, at work every day and then you, don't, you can take a day off at the end of the week. Or I guess that doesn't work. We don't have enough days and hours. I don't know how regular hours work. I don't work regular hours. Um, but but it's, it, it's, it's not that. God said, you rest on the seventh day because on the seventh day, you need to completely and entirely trust me to provide for you. Resting, not working on the Sabbath day, that you had to trust God for provision. You had to trust God for protection. And there was, there was no like, I've got a little bit in my back pocket and God's taking me the rest of the way. It's, no, you do nothing. You do nothing on that seventh day and you trust God fully and completely to care for you. It was a reminder that we belong to God that the Israelites belonged to him and that regardless of how hard they worked, which was good, God instituted work before the fall, you work hard, but you recognize even on those days that you work hard, it is God that provides. What is the biggest proof and testimony of that? You take an an entire day off and even on that day where you do no work, you will still be provided for. You will still have what you need. God cares for his people. Flip over to Exodus 31. Exodus 31, verse 12 through 17. I won't read the whole thing. But there's another section on the Sabbath. Some more things are given there. And what we see primarily in this section is that there's the addition of the death penalty. That wasn't stated in Exodus 20, but we get that extra, extra little bit. Uh, where, what am I looking here? 14, verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Profaning the Sabbath equals death. Then there's that qualification that follows afterwards. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. It means you're entirely separated. You are no longer recognized as being one of the people of God. You do not work. How serious are you supposed to take that command? Very seriously. If you do not take it seriously and you seek to profane what God has made holy, you shall be put to death. Verse 13 adds something else in there. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Israelites would have worked six days a week. The Lord has instituted all these different um, tabernacle, temple, uh, religious rites and ceremonies, sacrifices, incense, oil, offerings, all these different things, grain offerings. They've got all of these different things that are meant to help them relate to God. Make them acceptable in some capacity, in some way, in the presence of God. You have sinned, therefore something needs to be done. You can't stand before God on your own feet. There needs to be atonement. There needs to be something that takes place. And verse 13 highlights the fact that you can do that six days a week. You can do all those things that you think are actually making you right before God. But this reminder of verse 13 
is that the Lord sanctifies alone. You don't sanctify yourself. You can work as hard as you want six days a week. And on that seventh day where you do nothing, you are more sanctified on that seventh day resting in God than you are six days working by yourself. You are no closer to holiness, no closer to righteousness on the basis of what you do. It is God alone, the Lord, sanctifies. Flip over to Deuteronomy 5. This is, of course, as I'm sure most of you know, this is the re-giving of the law. Exodus was before, as the people were being led out of the nation of Egypt, they were, there was the great Exodus, that's why we call it Exodus, and then they, they sinned going into the promised land. They didn't listen to the Lord, they didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb, they were afraid, and then they decided, no, we're going to do it, even though the Lord said, don't do it, and then they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. Deuteronomy is the re-giving of the law after those 40 years as they are finally entering the promised land. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The mighty hand being the hand of power, the hand that can actually do, and the outstretched arm, the arm that reached out and actually did, not the arm that has been pulled back, has the power but doesn't do anything. The Lord's arm is outstretched. The mighty hand, the powerful hand of God, bringing his people that were once slaves in Egypt out of slavery into the promised land. And it's a reminder is in the context of the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? To remind yourselves that God and God alone saves. God and God alone redeems. And to remind yourselves that you are God's special covenant people. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Isaac. He made a covenant with Jacob. He has made a covenant with Joseph and with all of their descendants. And here they are about to enter the promised land. You Honor the Sabbath. You keep the Sabbath. You do not work on the Sabbath. And you don't need to. You are God's special covenant chosen people. And he has promised to provide. And not just provide and barely get you by. He has promised to provide far abundantly and more than you could ever think or imagine. Remember he told Abraham, go out and count the stars. Go out and count the the sand on the seashore. Can you do it? Of course not. You will be blessed far above Anything you can ever imagine. It's not just a bare provision. It's a provision to the full. That's a little bit of the Old Testament context. So we get no work. If you work on it, you die. But there's reasons why it's holy. We're patterning ourselves after God himself. It's a reminder that we are God's people. It's a reminder that God himself saves. God himself redeems. That we do not work to earn our redemption. To earn our salvation. To earn any right standing before God. It is God and him alone that sanctifies. Well then we move to rabbinic interpretation. And I'm not going to give you all of the rabbi quotes. This rabbi said that and this rabbi said this. I'm just going to give you a quick overview of what basically was taught there was the intense stream of thought within rabbinic tradition that said you can't carry your kids can't even pick them up you can't help an animal give birth you can't help an animal that's fallen into pit you can't you can't you can't do anything you basically sit down and you don't you don't move on the sabbath day and this is all based on the interpretation of what counts as work every jew believed that you should not work on the sabbath every God-fearing Jew believed that. 
because you understood what Moses taught, do not work. It was what counts as work, what qualifies as work. That's where the rabbis were more than happy to put their interpretation in. They were more than happy to tell you exactly what counted as work. So there was that intense, don't even pick up your kids. There was the less intense, which the Pharisees would have fallen into. It would, it would count for don't plow, no hunting, no butchering. Don't tie or loosen knots. You know, you're, you're working too hard in that capacity. You can't do more than one stitch when you're sewing. You can't write more than one letter. Basically, don't start any work on Friday that would take yourself over into Saturday. You don't want it to extend over the Sabbath because you, you don't want to get caught at sundown, Friday night, Sabbath has started, and all of a sudden you're, you're holding up a beam because you're building a house, and you've got to stop, and, and you've got to put everything down. Basically, it was don't do any work that isn't absolutely necessary. Now, we've heard that phrase before, haven't we? We've heard that in recent days. Don't go outside unless absolutely necessary. And the confusing part for many people, and I'll throw myself into that boat, is what are you counting as absolutely necessary? Well, you can say don't go outside for anything other than groceries, medical appointments, work. But then there's all these lists of contingencies that allow me to go out for other things. Well, are these things essential or not? It's very confusing. And I'm not here to critique uh, Doug Ford or, or the government in terms of how they laid out their documents. That's just a f- matter of fact. We're confused. We're not quite sure, okay, what is essential? Because what is essential for me could be entirely different than what is essential for you. And I think that's where a lot of the problem is, is people have different priorities. People have different understanding of what is and is not essential. And the Pharisees said, don't do anything that isn't absolutely necessary on the Sabbath. Basically, bringing it down to don't do anything that, if it's not life-endangering, if, if a life isn't in danger and you need to save that life, don't do it. So the difference between if you had a dislocated foot, you can't set your dislocated foot or your dislocated hand, dislocated shoulder. You can't set that because that's not life endangering. You could wait to the end of the Sabbath. You can wait till Saturday at sundown, then we'll put it back in place. You're not going to die. If a house caved in, if a house fell, you could remove the rubble to see if there was anybody inside. And if they were alive good, they were alive. If they were dead, you left them. You don't, you don't, you stopped as soon as you saw this person is dead. Well, I will wait to the end of the Sabbath. I can't save them. They are clearly dead. We'll leave their bodies there. We'll deal with them after the Sabbath. But you could only remove enough rubble to see that. The action was still the same, that of removing rubble and and stones and bricks and, and, and beams and all of that stuff. But it was the point of saving a life on the inside. If there was a life that could be saved, you were allowed to do it. And that was the difference. You were allowed to do it, but you weren't required. And what we'll see later in chapter 3, Jesus asked the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? That phrase, do good, it's actually right to do this. The Pharisees allowed certain things, but they didn't say it was necessary. It was right to actually save life on the Sabbath. They allowed certain things, but they didn't recognize the absolute necessity of some things that happened on the Sabbath. So what we get in the Mosaic Law, don't work. 
And the Pharisees determined what was considered work. And that's where we're at as we come to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And what we see is, as they ask their questions, the, the, the problems that they have with Jesus is because they've equated their specific interpretation of work, what counts as work, they've equated their interpretation with the law itself. The law says, do not work. If you work, you should die. And they've equated that with, if you sew two stitches, you are worthy of death. They had taken their specific interpretation of work and substituted that in with the Mosaic law. We see that in verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Wandering through a grain field and picking grains of head off and eating them. They had equated that even though you go through the Old Testament and you go through the Sabbath laws, there's no, there's no law that specifically states picking a grain of head, a head of grain, got that backwards, picking a head of grain equals work. But they had interpreted the disciples' act as reaping, which counts as work. So their interpretation was Plucking the head of grain equals work, equals reaping, which equals work. Therefore, you don't do it on the Sabbath. They had gone through these these logical conclusions that they had set up themselves. And they had said, because you have done this, this equals that, which equals that, which equals therefore you should not do it. They had jumped through all these hoops and worked their way all the way back. Even though the act itself, what the disciples were doing was acceptable. According to Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, it was acceptable for you to walk through anybody's field within Israel. You could walk through the field and you could pick the heads of grain and eat them. You were hungry. You were needing nourishment to continue on your journey. So you could wander through and you could pick them. There was the qualification that you could not take a plow. You could not take the, um, what's the thing I'm thinking of? The thing that harvests them. Yeah, thank you. The scythe. You couldn't take the scythe or or some harvesting instrument. You couldn't take that through and start harvesting their field for yourself. But within Israel, you could provide for other people with the field that you had. They had no right to take from you in terms of actually harvesting your hard work. But people could go through and do that. They could also go through your, your vineyard. They could pick the grapes. But you couldn't start gathering them in baskets. Basically, if you were hungry, eat. And you as a, uh, as a vineyard owner, as a field owner, this is a God-instituted right thing to do when people are hungry. Provide for them. You have an entire field. What's a couple of heads of grain? What's a couple of grapes? If it means that they can keep going. If they can keep on their journey. So the act itself was acceptable. The problem was the timing of the act. The Pharisees didn't have a problem with the act itself, but the act on the Sabbath There was even supposed to be rest during the harvest. In Exodus 34, it says, even though it's harvest time and you need to work really, really hard to make sure all of your grain gets in, all of your grapes get in, you're harvesting all of your hard-earned and hard-worked-for food, you stop on the Sabbath. You You don't harvest, you don't work on the Sabbath. And because there was rest even during harvest time, the Pharisees had taken all of this information and they had said, therefore, you can't even feed yourself on Sunday. Well, it wasn't Sunday, it was Saturday. You can't feed yourself on the Sabbath. You're hungry. But if you use the God-instituted, God-given laws to provide for people in need, 
You utilize that on the Sabbath, and that is breaking the Sabbath. Jesus then gives an illustration in verses 25 through 26. They've got a big problem with them. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus uses an illustration that's found in 1 Samuel 21. It's the account that some of you may have read. And actually, if you've read it before, and if you go back to 1 Samuel 21, it's found in the first six verses, you'll notice something that might seem off at first. Jesus references Abiathar. But in 1 Samuel 21, Abiathar is not the one that gives the bread. Abiathar is not the high priest at the time of David coming and eating the bread. It's Ahimelech. Ahimelech was Abiathar's father. So there's Ahimelech. Abiathar will become high priest shortly after. He will become the high priest that is actually famous during the time of David. That is, when you say King David, you say, who was the high priest during the time of King David? Abiathar. Who was the king during the time of the high priest? Abiathar. David. So there are people that want to say, well, Jesus got it wrong. Or Mark got it wrong. Or Peter, who is relating these conversations to Mark, he got it wrong. Somebody got it wrong along the way because it's Ahimelech, not Abiathar, who gives the bread. And it seems likely because Jesus does not say that Abiathar gave him the bread. Ahimelech gave him the bread. He just says, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. Ahimelech was not very well known. Aside from that little um, passage in 1 Samuel 21, He's just not famous. He's in there, but he's not well known. And this is roughly a thousand years later. So who do you reference when you're trying to get people to remember the time frame, the timing of what happened? You use the more famous individual. In the same way that we even do this with Jesus himself. During the time of Jesus, during the time of Jesus, this was true or this happened or these things took place. But we can use that Jesus lived from this time to this time on the earth. He was on the earth during a certain time frame. And yet, that kind of extends a little bit before and a little bit after. During the time of Jesus, we're using that as, as a phrase that basically says, go back 2,000 years during that time. Most scholars, and I think I would agree with them, they're just saying, Jesus is saying, go back then. Remember that time during Abiathar, the high priest, the famous guy back in, in, in the Old Testament during the time of David? Yeah, that high priest, and he was a good high priest. Remember that guy? Well, David did something during that time. That's all that's going on. It's a dating reference for a more well-known priest to help us understand, okay, go back to that time. So you're talking about David. Okay, we get that, but, but when? Because David... David lived a long time. We're going back that far. We're going back to that time period. And the point is not who the priest was. That's not the point that Jesus brings up. That's not the point that Mark is communicating as he relates Jesus' words. The point is not who the priest was, but what David's actions were during that time. What did David do? What did David lead his followers to do? And also gave it to those who were with him. David did something that according to the law was unacceptable. David did something unacceptable according to the law 
and made his followers do the same. But the usage of the bread, nourishment, food. David was on the run. David was running from King Saul. David and his faithful followers were running away. They were seeking shelter. They were seeking to be far away from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. He's on the run. He's got no food. He's got no supplies. He's got nothing. And so he comes to the high priest and he says, I need help. I need nourishment. I need food. And the bread of the presence was only supposed to be eaten by the high priest himself. And Ahimelech, he gives some qualifications where he says, well, if you haven't slept with any women, then you can have this. I don't, some discussion, is he, is he bending the rules here? Well, if, you, if you're clean in this capacity, if you haven't made yourselves unclean in some capacity, then, then maybe, yeah, that would be acceptable and okay. Regardless of Ahimelech's intentions, David knows full well that he's not supposed to eat the bread. That was pretty obvious. David knew very clearly that that bread was for the high priests, for the high priest and the priests, for them alone. But David says, give that to me. I'll take that. High priest does. And Jesus vindicates David. Jesus says that was right. That is, Jesus says, David didn't break the law. David didn't do something that was wrong. Jesus doesn't say, well, he did that. And yes, he did break the law, but it was acceptable. In the same way, I remember when Naomi was about to be born, I had dropped Candace off at Guelph Bible Conference Center. They were doing youth camp. I think it was youth camp that week. And they were doing youth camp. I came to the office and it was about 20 minutes later. I got a phone call saying, you need to come pick up your wife. She's about to give birth. I mean, what do you mean she's about to give birth? Like right now. Like, well, drive her to the hospital and I'll meet you there. Don't you realize the hospital's on the other, like in between us and the camp. And so I, I had to race over to pick up Candace to get her to the hospital so that Naomi could be born. And on the way over there, I blew through a couple of red lights. Now I slowed down. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this. This is being live streamed. Um, I, I slowed down because I didn't, want, I didn't want to T-bone somebody. I didn't somebody want somebody. But I did not stop and wait at the red light for it to turn green. I slowed down and I made sure nobody was there. But I was going to get to that place to pick up my wife because Candace needed to get to the hospital. I broke the law. I think everybody would agree that I broke the law. You are not supposed to go through a red light. I was speeding in a zone. I broke the law. Now, what people will say is, yes, but that was an acceptable exemption. Maybe some people disagree with that. But I think a lot of people would go, yeah, you, you ran the red light, but it was for a good reason. You didn't do it just because you were trying to flaunt and break the law. You did it because there was a greater need on the other side of this law. That law was keeping you from doing something that was needed, that was necessary. And Jesus doesn't just say it was an, he broke the law, but there was a good reason for doing that. Jesus actually says he was right in doing this. It was good and acceptable for him to do this. It was right. That is, the nourishment of David and his men is proven to be lawful. It takes priority over the do not eat the bread, and this is for the priests only. And then Jesus explains what he just used in his illustration, verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the creational order. That is, man was created first, then the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made, instituted on the seventh day. Adam and Eve were created before that. So creationally, in the creational order, that makes sense that Adam was made first and the Sabbath was made afterwards to be beneficial to Adam and Eve, to be beneficial for the nation of Israel. It's the creational order, but also the relational order. Who serves who? Who's actually wearing the pants in the relationship? Um, Who gets to take charge? Well, it's man. The Sabbath was made to serve man, not the other way around. The Sabbath was not made to be over top of man, to be keeping man within a box. It was actually made to serve, to bless, to make more fruitful. He created the Sabbath, that is, God created the Sabbath, not as a hindrance, which is how the Pharisees had seen the Sabbath for so long. There's so much you can't do. Don't do that. No, 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 no. You're not supposed to do that. That misses the entire intention of why God created the Sabbath to begin with. The Sabbath was not created to pin man down. It was created to bless, to help you as humanity flourish. And then in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, Jesus, God himself, he created the Sabbath. Jesus created the Sabbath. And because he created the Sabbath, he's of course Lord over the Sabbath. He's Lord over what he created. And therefore, he has the right to define what is right and what is good to happen on the Sabbath. There would have been those that looked at what David did And would have said, no, David shouldn't have done that. I know he was hungry. I know he was on the run. And I know Saul was in the wrong, but David should not have eaten that bread. And there would have been Pharisees who would have condemned David for that act. Jesus says, don't you see that what David did, not just providing for himself, but providing for his followers, providing for the people who had put their trust and faith in him, that was right. And Jesus is putting himself in the place of David. He's saying, I'm just like David. And David being a messianic form in some sense, being the king in the Old Testament that everybody identified with and wanted to follow. Jesus is saying, in the same way that David led his followers to do what was right on the Sabbath, I lead my followers to do what is right on the Sabbath. I do not lead them into sin. I do not lead them down a path that they should not go. My disciples, my followers will be provided for on the Sabbath day. In this case, it was plucking some heads of grain. But then we move into chapter 3, and we see another individual who has a need on the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue to teach. He's always teaching when he enters the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The, the, The disciples are there. There's other people in the synagogues, and the Pharisees are there. But they're there for all the wrong reasons. They're not there to hear Jesus teach. They're not here there to hear what he has to say about the kingdom of God. They're there to accuse him. And notice that they have no doubt that Jesus could heal. They're waiting and watching to see whether he would heal him. They have no doubt in their mind that Jesus can do this. 
they have no doubt that Jesus can actually heal this man with a withered hand. They've seen him heal people with fevers. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal a variety of other sort and other sorts of diseases. They have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus can heal this man with a withered hand. They're waiting to see if he will. Is he going to break our law? Is he going to do? Because again, they're not against healing. They get upset with Jesus because he healed on this day, on the Sabbath. And the day that was created by God, instituted by God, to help people see and recognize their need of him, their dependence on him, the day that was created by God to bless humanity, to bless his people, stop working, everybody. Just trust me. Just rest in me and I will provide. God can bless you and give you in much better ways than you can bless and give yourself. So trust and rest in him. And they were there not to see that, not to be blessed on the Sabbath. They were there to accuse Jesus. They wanted to see if they would heal him. And then there's the simple act and a simple question. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. This is a simple act. Come here. We don't know where he would have been sitting. We don't know whether he was sitting in the back trying to stay, you know, kind of off in the corner. We don't want to draw too much attention He's got a withered hand. Did he have it covered? People obviously knew. They, the Pharisees knew that he had a withered hand. This man had been here before probably. And Jesus knows that he has a withered hand. This man is not unknown. And he's called to the front. Most people are terrified at being called to the front. <laughs> we're terrified at being called to the front in class when we were in school. And maybe in more capacities, we are terrified when the pastor asks you to come to the front and stand for an illustration. Nobody likes that. But he says, come here. And then he turns and he says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? It's a simple question. There's the simple act of this man coming forward and he's standing there with his withered hand in front of them. And it's a simple question of, is it good? Is it right? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? It's a yes or no answer. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Clearly doing harm is wrong in any context, not just on the Sabbath. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? And they fail to recognize the justness of what Jesus, what Jesus is going to do. The question that he's posing, because they know what's going on in Jesus' mind. They're not prophetic in that sense, but they know that, oh, we've seen Jesus act before. He's probably going to heal. Jesus knows their hearts. And he knows that they fail to recognize the rightness, the justness, the goodness of healing on the Sabbath, of restoring on the Sabbath. This man needed Jesus to act, needed Jesus to heal. The Pharisees said, that's good and fine. Jesus, you got six other days in the week to do it. Jesus, you do your work on those six days. Only God does things on the Sabbath. And what Jesus is doing by working on the Sabbath. He is working on the day that only God was allowed to work. And he is doing something that only God was able to do. And they failed to see it. He's setting them up perfectly for them to declare, just like Thomas does at the end of the gospel, my Lord and my God, 
This is who you are. We now see and understand who you are. Your pronouncement of these things and your implementation of what you've just said. We now see who you are. And they failed to see that they actually need Jesus to work on the Sabbath. They're condemning him and accusing him of working on the Sabbath. But as God, as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords, they need this man, Jesus, to stand before them and work on the Sabbath because God is doing his work of restoration every time that people rested in him. And people, the Pharisees needed to recognize that they needed to rest in him. Well, verses 5 and 6, we see the difference between a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. We see Jesus' response. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. This is the only, I think, if my memory serves me, correct me. This is the only passage in the scriptures that explicitly states Jesus was angry. Now, what about the Jesus clearing out the temple? It doesn't say that he was angry. We can infer, imply, assume. We can guess. One, one of those terms, pick one of the... Now, we can guess that Jesus had righteous anger and righteous indignation towards those in the temple as they were basically stealing from people, as they were charging people, as they were doing their den of robbery things in the temple. But it doesn't actually say that Jesus was angry. This says that Jesus was angry. And what is he angry about? He's grieved at their hardness of heart, their inability, their unwillingness to see. And their failure to see the true purposes of God, the true intentions of God behind the Sabbath, blessing, healing, restoration. They don't see it. And that results in Jesus' anger and grief, sadness, And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus doesn't say, your faith has made you well. He doesn't say, be restored. He says, stretch out your hand. He doesn't touch the man, as far as we can tell. We're just told that the man reaches out. Jesus says nothing more. He does nothing more. And the man's hand is restored. Healed. Made right fixed because of what Jesus did on the day that only God was supposed to work. They failed to see the true purposes of God and they failed and were unwilling to see that their interpretations of the Sabbath law, their specific interpretations of the Sabbath law, that those interpretations actually stood in opposition against the true purpose of the law, the true purpose of the Sabbath to heal, restore, and bless. They said, no, 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 no. Do nothing on the Sabbath. Nobody does anything on the Sabbath. And they would have looked back at Exodus 20 and said, see, God even rested on the Sabbath. And they might have even accused God himself of stopping to work on the Sabbath. And they failed to see that what they were doing, what they were saying, what they were teaching was actually contrary to what Jesus was saying the true purpose of the law was. And then they go out. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus poses the question, is it it lawful to do good or to do evil? To give life or to kill? They are unwilling to say what is obviously true, that is to do right and to give life. They are unwilling to say that. And then they go out, and on the very same day that they've accused Jesus of doing what is not lawful, they go out and do what is clearly unlawful. Scheme to destroy, scheme to kill. They fail to see that Jesus has set them up perfectly. If you don't answer 
rightly, you've doomed yourself. And they go out and seek how to destroy him. Not just kill. Some translations say kill, that is true. And certainly within destroy, there is that idea and that understanding of kill. But destruction is something greater than that. There's um, the TV show Sherlock. Has anybody seen that? Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Yeah. Modern day retelling of Sherlock Holmes. And in one of the seasons, I can't remember which one, but they're, they're up against uh, James Moriarty. Jim Moriarty, as he is in this series. And they're confronting him, and Jim Moriarty is telling Sherlock and Dr. Watson, you, you need to back off. You know, stop coming after me and the things that I'm doing, or I'm, I'm going to get you. And he actually says, you need to stop. And Sherlock says, or what? You're going to kill me? And Jim Moriarty says, I'm not going to kill you. I will burn you. I will burn the heart out of you. I will destroy you. And what we'll see, sorry for the spoilers here, but in the next season, what happens is, is Jim Moriarty has now set up something to actually destroy everything that Sherlock stood for. He's dismantled Sherlock as a detective, as a good man, as somebody who does right and actually helps people. He turns him into a fraud. He destroys everything that Sherlock stood for to the point where Sherlock can't show his face without people accusing him of actually doing wrong. Jim Moriarty didn't want to just kill Sherlock. That was too easy. You dismantle and destroy the man and everything that he stands for, and that will do the work for you. They want to destroy Jesus. They don't want to just kill him. Yes, that's on the docket. That's on the to-do list. They want to destroy everything that Jesus stands for. They want to destroy this new teaching. They want to destroy this, this new man who teaches with an authority that nobody's ever heard before. We need, to, we need to figure out a way to destroy this guy and what he stands for. Yes, we'll kill him eventually, but we need to convince everybody that what he does is actually evil, not right. That though he claims to not just work for God, but be God himself. And he's given many good evidences of that. We need to destroy and upturn, overturn everything that he is saying, or we will lose all control. We will lose all power. They want to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees failed to see that although they observed the Sabbath according to their interpretation of the Sabbath, They failed to see Jesus and his interpretation, his definition, his understanding of what was going on as true and right and good. And the question at the end of this, I think is rightly asked, why do we not observe the Sabbath as instituted under the Mosaic law? We read what was in Exodus and Deuteronomy. We don't do that, okay? And we're not going to do what the Pharisees do, okay? But why don't we... Why don't we do anything? Then I give a warning to those people who say, I think we should observe the Sabbath. Okay, then you need to observe a six-day work week. (laughs) No Saturdays for you. But why do we not do the same thing? Was it not good? Are those things that God instituted under the Old Testament still not good and right? Resting in him, trusting in him completely and fully, recognizing that on this day, we do not work, but we trust God to bless and to heal and restore and give everything that we need. We may ask the question, why do we not observe the Sabbath as instituted under the Mosaic Law? And my answer would be because we observe it in a much better, more full, more comprehensive, and just better way. 
to the more fullest extent, the book of Matthew, just before Matthew's account of of Jesus' Sabbath controversy, he will say in Matthew 11, verse 28, this is Jesus speaking, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest is no longer found in a day, it's found in a person. It's not found in a specific time because time comes and goes and it is always changing, but it's found in a person who is always there, who is always willing, who is always going to restore, who, who can always heal, and it will always be the right time for him to do those things. Jesus is now our rest. We rest in Jesus. Rest from working for our salvation. Rest for working for acceptance before God. We, we stop working all of those things that we think we're doing to earn ourselves a standing before God, to earn a right place before God. All of that's gone. I don't need to do that anymore because I'm resting in Jesus. And what I need, what these Pharisees needed, what we need to recognize is on the day where I rest, Jesus works. He doesn't stop working. He keeps working for me and for you. He worked as he lived and as he taught and as he prophesied and as he healed. He worked when he went to the cross. And then he said on the cross, it is finished. My work is done. My work of redemption right here is done. And now he works right now. As he rule and reigns at the right hand of the Father, he stands there before the Father as our advocate standing for me and for you. He continually works each and every day and you and I rest in him. We ought to rest in him each and every day. He can provide material things. He can provide what we need daily and he has provided exactly what we need in salvation. We want to be careful that we don't we ought to rebuke the Pharisees in their hardness of heart and their inability to see Jesus for who he truly was. And yet we can fall into that category all too easily. Yes, I know I rest in Jesus, but I help a little bit. Don't you see those things, those good things that I do? Didn't you see how I worked that hard this past year? How I committed myself to this ministry or this capacity in this way? And yeah, I, know, I know Jesus does all that work, but I work too. And we do work, but we don't work to earn anything. We don't work to earn our standing or our position before God because Jesus has done all the work that's needed. Whatever you add to that ain't worth it. (laughs) We trust and we rest in Jesus and in him alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to do that. It's hard. It's hard because we don't like trusting and being reliant on other people. We maybe struggle with that in North America in ways that other people, other people around the world don't. We trust that you would help us to become more trusting, more reliant. We don't like giving up control, not having things in the power of our hands, but help us to put ourselves completely and wholly into the mighty hand of God, the outstretched hand of God, the one who has healed and restored and continues to work day by day in our hearts and in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.